Well, hey there, Hershey Free. I'm so glad that you could join us uh, online for this online message and service. Uh, a couple things I want to point out, and you may already know this is there, but I want to point out that we do have devotional guides that accompany the sermon series that we are going through right now. Go through it individually, or uh, your small group can go through it, your family can go through it at the dinner table, whatever you want to do there. And also, some of you are joining us online for the very first time, uh, maybe because of COVID-19 and coronavirus things, you haven't been able to visit us in person, but, but you are new to our church and checking out our church. So I just want to say thank you for joining us and being a guest with us. Uh, we're missing the, the personal touch of being able to see each other face-to-face, and uh, obviously we won't be shaking hands for probably a year or two now, right? But uh, I do want to point out, if you go to hfcinfo.com, you can see our online bulletin. And if you click right here, there's a Connect card. That's just so that we can know that that you uh, were with us in some capacity, and maybe we can send you a letter in the mail or, or at least follow up with you in some way, and thank you for being a part of this service. With us. So I hope that you'll do that. Uh, we're going to jump in today to uh, Psalm 56. We've been going through a series that uh, picks up on various psalms that are in the Old Testament. And to, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 56. Uh, unfortunately, these psalms were all written in Hebrew. And to my knowledge, uh, not many of us in the church are fluent in Hebrew. Raya, if you're watching, you might be able to read this in the original Hebrew language. The rest of us, me included, uh, are, are far from being able to do so. So so we miss some of the nuance that comes with these poems. We miss maybe some of the alliteration, some of the similar sounds, uh, some of the rhyming that happens, some of the maybe the flow of the syllables and how they come out, uh, which, which is, unfortunately, it is pretty important in any kind of poetry. Uh, also, a lot of these poems were turned into songs, and there was a bed of music underneath, and uh, so we're unfortunately we're also missing that a little bit. We can't feel the crescendo. We can't feel the music come in and slow down and, and speed up at certain points. However, it has been translated into English into perhaps a Bible that you're holding in your hand right now, and so we can't pick up on the meaning. And I think we can still get a lot out of these psalms and learn a lot uh, from the prayers that these people were expressing as they wrote these psalms. So anyway, with that in mind, again, because this is a song, it's a poem that was made into a song, I want to make sure that you catch the chorus, the refrain of this poem, which is going to come up twice when we read it in its entirety in a minute. But here, let me just read a couple of lines from the chorus of this psalm. So uh, David is the one who wrote this. We'll get to that in a minute. And he writes, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now, I just want to pick out two lines that come in here. They're not exactly squished up next to each other, but they, they occur in such a way that I think we're meant to pick up on, uh, you, know, you know, maybe a conflict of what's going on in David's mind as he writes this. Let me just pull these out for you. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, I trust and am not afraid. He says, when, not, not if, but when I am afraid. It's actually the Hebrew word yom, which just, just refers to an indefinite period of time. So, so at, at, at those times, or in this season, or at that time, in those moments where, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. But then he kind of contradicts himself, and he says, but I trust in God, and psh, I'm not afraid, right? And I think what we're meant to see as we read this psalm is that David feels that he's wedged between two truths that he really believes in both of them. On the one hand, he is in constant peril, and then on the other hand, he feels constant peace. He's wedged between two truths, that both of which he believes. One is that he is in constant peril, and then secondly, he is also in constant peace in the midst of 
this peril. The, the, the peril and the peace come at the same time, in other words. And in a minute when we read this psalm, we're going to notice some of the reasons why he feels that he is in peril. He speaks of the enemies that he has and the, the pressure they're putting on him. He, he mentions that his enemies are, they, they are watching him. They are doing surveillance on his every move. They are listening to him. They're, they're taking his words and twisting them so that uh, they can conspire against him with other people who maybe at one point they were his allies. They, they're actually seeking his life. So it's a pretty severe uh, situation that he's in right now. But he also talks about the, the constant peace that he has. In the midst of this peril, he he senses peace because he knows that God is watching him. He knows that God is for him. He knows that God might intervene at any moment. And so he, he almost makes it sound like he has this seesaw going on, that he has this scale in front of him where in one pan he feels the peril in front of him. On the other hand, in the other pan of the scale, he feels the peace that God brings. And I would almost venture to say that maybe there were moments, maybe there were days, maybe there were weeks where one of those pans felt heavier than at other times. And perhaps when he's writing this, I don't know what's going on, but, but perhaps he felt the pan of, of peril being heavier than the pan that was holding the peace and the trust that he felt in God. And, and it was overwhelming, and the anxiety was debilitating, and uh, he, he feared for his life, and so the peril was heavier. But then there, perhaps there were moments where the peace felt heavier than the peril. Even though the peril was still there, the danger was there, the anxiety was there, the stress, the tension was hard, the hardship was there, his, his peace in God felt, felt heavier in those moments. And I imagine, I imagine many of us can kind of feel this going on in our own life, where there's moments where we sense both of these at the same time. However, there's times where the peril is heavier or the peace is heavier. And I wonder if any of you uh, listening to this right now, I would, I would imagine that all of you have felt this at some point where you felt constant peace at the same time you felt constant peril. And perhaps you can identify with David's psalm. In fact, so many people have identified with this psalm in the past that this, this psalm itself made its way into the supreme uh, you know, hymnal of, of, of the Hebrew faith, right? Of, of, of the, the supreme hymnal that the Hebrews used when they worshiped. This one made it in because so many people resonated with this and, and, and felt the words and felt the things that David was feeling. And I understand maybe talking about enemies is maybe a foreign concept, or maybe the word peril is, is too, too strong of a word, but I think all of us can identify with this. Uh, if not now, then at some point, or uh, unfortunately, some point in the future. You know, David feared losing his life, and perhaps you fear losing something of your own or perhaps your livelihood. David was restless. He was unable to sleep, worrying about the next day. And perhaps you felt nights where there were tears or or you just couldn't sleep because of the anxiety. David had high anxiety, and he felt high pressure to keep it together despite the turmoil that was going on in his own mind. And perhaps your own emotional health, your own mental health has been a great burden to you uh, in recent days. David was overwhelmed with carrying out his responsibilities while so many people were depending on him. And perhaps you've been feeling that overwhelmed too. Responsibilities from work, responsibilities from home, responsibility to take care of yourself and keep things going. Perhaps you felt that tension as well. David admits that his enemies are doing surveillance on him, and perhaps even those closest to him are maybe functioning as double agents. They're taking his words, they're twisting them. We're going to see that uh, in just a minute. And perhaps you felt that, especially lately, people that were closest to you are, are at odds with you. You're at odds with each other. Maybe people in your own family, uh, there's, there's a lot to, to disagree about, right, and to argue about right now, it seems. A lot of that going on in the world. David felt alone in his peril, and maybe you also feel alone. 
this constant peril, this, this constant peace. And David is, is wedged between these two truths as he writes this poem, as he constructs this song that's going to make it into the Hebrew hymnal. But I think it's interesting that he, at, maybe this isn't intentional, but, but he tends to bring out things that his enemies are doing, things that his enemies are, are, are saying about him, and he tends to compare those to the way that God interacts with him. You know, he mentions that his enemies are watching him, they're doing surveillance, but it also feels as though God is watching me too. My enemies are against me, but God is for me. My enemies are out to take my life, and God is out to preserve my life. My enemies are twisting my words. However, I'm going to put my trust in God's word, or I'm going to put my praise in God's word, he says. My enemies are listening to me. However, I know that God is listening to me. That's why I'm writing out this prayer to him. And so he senses that, hey, there's this peril, but there's also this peace that I'm going through. And I guess a question that I have right now for us is if we have this scale up, or we are feeling this peril, we are also feeling this peace, is there a way to add weight to the peace side of this equation? Is there a way for me to take weight and add it to my trust in God so that the peril goes up and the peace comes down as the heavier part of what I'm feeling right now? Is it possible to tip the scales in feeling peace in the midst of peril that I go through? That's a question that I'd like you to have in the back of your mind as we go through this. And so at this point, I'm going to go ahead and pick it up, and we're going to read, uh, starting with the title of this psalm, we're going to read uh, Psalm 56 together. So here's the title. This was written for the director of music to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks. Josiah, that sounds like a pretty good, pretty good musical bed. Uh, I'd like to see that sometime. He mentions this is a psalm of David, so David's the one who wrote this. He calls it a miktim. We're not entirely sure what that means. It could mean the kind of instrument that was used. It could mean the kind of, the, the kind of poem. Uh, it's been a while since English class, so I'm sure there's different kinds of poems out there. I'm not sure what they are, but uh, we're not exactly sure what that means. And then he mentions that this is when the Philistines has seized him in Gath. So this is the title that perhaps your Bible uh, has as you, um, as you pick up Psalm 53. So this was a uh, particularly tumultuous time in David's life. He had a couple of different enemies. He, uh, for one, had just been anointed the next king of Israel. So that means he's going to be the next king of Israel. The unfortunate thing is, the tough thing is, there's a current king in Israel. And the current king is not fond of David becoming the next king. For one, it means his kingship is going to probably end soon. It means that uh, his son uh, is not going to take over as king. It's not going to carry on in his family line. You know, he is jealous of David. He doesn't think David is quite qualified. I mean, he was a he was a shepherd for crying out loud. He doesn't know much about government or war and, and those sort of things. And so, so uh, th- that's one of the dangers is that this current king is seeking David's life and David is constantly running and fleeing and uh, he finds it hard to hide within the nation that he's in, within Israel, because so many people uh, are recognizing him and maybe bringing this back to the king, which is probably what is happening uh, as we read the psalm in a minute. So he ends up fleeing to a city that's in Philistine territory called Gath. And of course, the Philistines are longtime uh, uh, um, enemies or competitors with Israel, and they've heard of this guy named David, and so that, that kind of becomes a mess as well. So he, he's really wedged between a couple of enemies. He is, he is feeling peril, and as we're going to see in a second, he also senses at the same time a peace from God. So let's, let's read uh, this psalm together as we go through. David writes, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. Here's the chorus. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. 
In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And then he continues on with the next uh, stanza. All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? My enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. Then he returns to the chorus again. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So that's the poem there. And as you study David's life, uh, you'll, you'll notice that there are several things that he could trust in. For one, he could trust in his, his beloved friend. He has a very close friend. Ironically, it's the current king's son, so that's a bit of irony there. But, but his, 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 his closest friendship is with this young man named Jonathan. And so he really leans into that relationship during uh, several times of, of peril that he's in, including this one. Uh, he also has, has a family that he can lean into and a wife that he dearly loves. He, he has a, a very witty mind. In fact, many times David is able to find an out-of-the-box answer to a very boxy situation, a very boxed-in situation that he's in. He does that many times. And it's, it's, pro- it's appropriate for him to lean into these things and find peace in, in some of these other people that are in his life. However, he reveals in this psalm that these things that he could trust in, that we could trust in, are not his greatest sense of peace. He, he reveals to us in the psalm that his greatest sense of peace during peril is his trust in God. It doesn't come from his skills, from his mind, from his family, from his riches. I guess at this point he probably doesn't have many riches. That comes later in his life. Or his friend Jonathan. And this is, this is important though. His peace doesn't require the peril and the stress to be removed. He doesn't need the peril to be gone for him to sense peace. In fact, in the midst of it, he says that he senses peace when he renews his trust in God. And in order to tip those scales so that his peace feels heavier than his peril, he renews his trust in God. That's, that's the answer that he gives us. And now as Christians, I just want us to point out that when times of peril come, they, they can be testy situations. They can test our emotional capacity. Times of peril can also test our stress tolerance. Times of peril can also test our independence and freedom from others during hardships. But as Christians, our times of peril can also be a test of our faith, a test of our trust in God. And they can force us to grow in that relationship with God. They can force us to grow in our maturity as followers of Jesus. And I have to say, there's, there's at least three different responses that I've seen various Christians go through when they encounter times of peril. I, I would call these three poor responses in perilous times. All right, fake it, take it, or forsake it. These are, these are three different, poor, I'd say, poor responses, negative responses, bad responses, when times of peril come, that, that I've seen and that I, that I also see in Scripture in different places. We can either fake it or take it or forsake it. And so let me just talk about a little bit what I mean by those three things. So first off, for, for faking it, some Christians, perhaps when they go through peril, they, they want to pretend that, that things are good. They put a smile on, they act maybe over-the-top optimistic, maybe more optimistic than, than you would expect someone in this kind of situation to act. Uh, perhaps this is because they feel that it's wrong to show that they are overwhelmed, or, or maybe they think that it's selfish to talk about their problems, or inconsiderate for them to talk about those things because there's, you know, there's people going through worse things in life than me. 
And, and perhaps they think that the peril is just going to go away over time if they just put a smile on, you know, just rely on positive thinking to kind of get this thing. If I just, if I just smile through this thing, if I just fake it, this, this will go away. And perhaps you've met people like this that uh, they, they use language like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. I know you're not fantastic, but, but they're kind of over the top with, with their optimism. Or, you know, I have no reason to complain. Uh, I, things could be worse. Or, the, you know, they use maybe language like that. However, when I read this text, I notice that David isn't faking anything. He, he's very honest about the turmoil, the hardship, the suffering, the, the peril that he is in. I mean, he's in a situation that's making his liver quiver, right? And he, so this is a way he writes. He says, my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long, they press their attack. They pursue me all day long. In pride, they are attacking me. They twist my words. Their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, hoping to take my life. I mean, he's very honest about what's going on. He's not faking anything as he goes through this peril. And so that's not a response that David takes at this time. So some people, they, they, they tend to lean towards faking it. Other people, they just take it. And by that, I mean they assume personal guilt when they go through hardship. They think that the hardships that they go through are punishments from God, or because of something they've done, they, maybe they deserve this peril that they're going through. Or this hardship is it's maybe some kind of discipline from God because I've wronged him, I've sinned in some way. This is, this is my own fault because of sin that I've committed. Uh, they, perhaps they think that the best way to handle overwhelming stress is just to take it on the cheek and to do penance. If you've heard that term before, maybe they want to do penance. They want to be really hard on themselves. And I think, unfortunately, it's just because there's, there's, they don't have a very good view of a, a very good theology of suffering. They, they don't have a category for suffering that isn't the result of, of some sin of mine. You know, I think about the story of Jesus where these people presented a, a case of a blind man to Jesus and said, hey, is it because of his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And that, that wasn't the case at all. That, that was not the, the reason at all why this man was born blind. And so some people, they, they just want to take it. Hey, God is, God is punishing me, or I deserve this, or uh, man, I need to do penance. I need to be better. And, and then their prayers to God, instead of being honest with God, their prayers are more filled with repentance and God, please forgive me. And I'm so sorry that I've done whatever I've done to deserve the peril that's come at me. And they, they just want to take it. And if they, if they take it, if they repent from it, if they, if they just lean into the penance that they're doing, then, well, God's wrath will be appeased in some way and, and these things will go away. However, when I read this text, I don't get the sense that David is faking it or just taking it, that he senses that he deserved this in any way. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a good rhythm for us to continually repent of our sins to God and, and continually check ourselves for our integrity and uh, our, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, our ability to walk with God in, in, in different ways. However, I don't sense this is what's going on in this text. In fact, David asked God in, in verse 8, he says, Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Uh, he, he, he's, he's viewing God as not the fixer, but, but the listener someone who empathizes and sympathizes with what David is going through. So those are two negative uh, responses to peril that we can have. We can fake it, we can take it. I think a third one that I've seen in people's lives is just forsake it. Right? Let's we'll walk away from the faith, we'll just give up. Walk away from their church, disengage with their small group, just discontinue attending church, discontinue those rhythms of walking with living with Jesus and, and reading the Bible and, and praying and, and seeking the Holy Spirit in their life. And I think this is because their faith isn't rooted deep enough to grow in times of peril. Instead, it's, I don't understand why this is happening. I guess this must not be true. And, and they walk away. Uh, for people like this, I think that the peril that they face is proof that God doesn't care. It's proof that 
God isn't listening. Perhaps it's proof that there is no God in the first place, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a proof of, of, of shallow understanding of faith, perhaps, that you know, the reason we have faith is so that we have a higher power in our court to take, you know, hardship away when it comes our way. And that's just, that's not, that's not a deep enough, a deep enough understanding of, of a theology of suffering. They don't have a category for how suffering can make us grow or lead to others hearing the gospel. And so they might say something like, hey, I prayed, but God just didn't listen. I prayed, but God didn't answer my prayer. I believe that God is, I can't believe that God is letting this happen to me. Remember, those are some of the things that come up when someone leans towards this negative way of handling peril. So fake it, take it, or forsake it. I think as far as the forsake it piece goes, you know, David really speaks into that when he writes in verse three and four. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, I trust, no matter what the peril is, and I am not afraid. And so, hey, I encourage you right now, if you're watching this with someone else, perhaps you can even pause the video for a second here and just, hey, talk about these and, hey, which one do you tend to lean into if you were to lean into one of those? What, which ones do the other people in the circle with you if you're with loved ones or friends or whatever? Uh, just, just take a moment and pause this if you like to and, and just discuss that with one another. Well, I hope you had a good discussion if you were able to pause the video for a minute and talk about those things. As we move on, I want to uh, point out something that I came across. Uh, it's another part of this psalm that I want to reveal to you, but uh, it reminded me of a book that I picked up recently. So uh, Dick Klopp, he, he let me borrow this book. And Dick, I'm going to get it back to you. I know I've had it way longer than I need to to be able to read. I'm going to get it back to you, brother. Don't worry. Uh, but there, there's a great chapter in here that, that I want to point something out, read a couple of lines uh, to you. It's written by a man named William McRaven. He was a U.S. Navy SEAL, and he writes about 10 lessons that he experienced during SEAL training. And I just want to read some things from chapter 9, lesson 9, which is entitled, Start Singing When You're Up to Your Neck in Mud. And so all this happened during the middle of Hell Week, so Wednesday of Hell Week. And Hell Week is the most intense week of SEAL training. It's that week that most of the SEALs in training actually drop out. They go and they ring the bell. They say, this is not for me. And it's, it's actually designed in such a way that it's meant to eliminate the weak and those who are not uh, prepared to become U.S. Navy SEALs someday. He describes it as six days of no sleep, unrelenting harassment from the instructors, long runs, open ocean swims, rope climbs, endless calisthenics, ca- constant paddling of this IBS, this, this small boat, uh, inflatable boat that they are on. And he talks about the toughest, in his opinion, the toughest part of Hell Week is experiencing the mud flaps, which is a drainage area south of San Diego before you get into Mexico, where uh, the, the mud becomes this hard clay-like material that sticks to you, and it's heavy, and it's wet, and it's cold, and it's, it's just absolutely miserable <laughs> as, you, as you go through a day of doing uh, different races and competitions with the other guys in your group uh, with an instructor uh, yelling at you the entire time. And so he describes uh, as the sun goes down, the wind is picking up. Of course, the clay is getting harder. It's getting colder. It's, it's, it's clinging to their skin. Uh, he even says this. He, he mentions that he and the other men are shaking uncontrollably with hands and feet swollen from nonstop use and skin so tender that the slightest movement brings discomfort. And then he remembers that a SEAL instructor stands up at a particularly vulnerable point of this evening, 
And he points over to a large fire that he has built, a warm fire. And he says, hey, if any of you want to come out of the mud and be done with all this, I welcome you to come sit by the fire, to come warm up, to get a blanket, to have some coffee, to have some chicken soup. He's got some chicken soup there. And so it's, a, it's, it's really an invitation that's very tempting to take. And uh, one of the men that is in this mud, that he's just neck deep in this clay, cold, miserable mud, he, he's, he's just bent on quitting and sitting. And so in order to quit and sit, he, he begins to exit the mud. But as he exits the, exits the mud, one of the other men in the group does something that's remarkable. So here's, here's a quote that I want to read to you from uh, this book by McRaven. He says, Suddenly, above the howl of the wind came a voice, singing. It was tired and raspy, but loud enough to be heard by all. Everyone knew the tune. One voice became two, two became three, and then before long, everyone was singing. And the student, rushing for the dry ground, turned around and came back beside me. And looping his arm around me, he began to sing as well. The instructor grabbed the bullhorn and shouted for the class to quit singing, but no one did. He yelled at the class leader to get control of the trainees, but the singing continued. With each threat from the instructor, the voices got louder and the class got stronger and the will to continue on in the face of adversity became unbreakable. I want to read that to you because... I want you to to picture these men binding together in a time of constant peril to give each other peace. And I just want you to imagine for a second David, as he, in the midst of adversity, sits down to write a poem in the midst of his peril. And I want you to imagine the expression on his face when he stands up with the Levite choir and looks over at the faces of hundreds of maybe thousands of people singing a song that he wrote And the song that he wrote is giving them a sense of peace. And so I not only want you to walk away from this message wondering how you can increase the weight of your peace in the midst of peril, but also how you can be someone who renews peace in others. And as we close out, I want to remind you, Hershey Free Church, that you are not dismissed. And when the screen goes black, church is not over. Church is just beginning. Because you are not dismissed. You are sent to sense God's peace during peril. You are also being sent to be a renewer of peace in other people as well. So God bless you. Thank you.